Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell. In addition to podcasting, I'm a leadership and mastermind coach, a strategy and fundraising consultant, a speaker, and an author. In fact, if you have not checked out my book, please do so. It's also titled Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership. If you'd like a copy or you want to check out any of the programs or resources we have to offer, go to PattonMcDowell.com. Thanks, as always, for listening. And I know you're going to enjoy this conversation with Jay Frost, who brings great experience and has been a global voice on many topics related to fundraising and philanthropy. But this is a conversation that's going to make you stop and think. Jay has collected stories throughout his career journey in the fundraising space, and while some are just funny, others are downright scary. Now, of course, Jay's intent is not to scare you off, but it is to get your attention. And what can you learn from these horror stories? And maybe more importantly, what can you do about it and help your organization prepare for these calamities before they strike? Or... Perhaps they will help you more effectively deal with them if, in fact, they do occur. Jay also gives us some bonus content on donor research, standing out in a crowd, and the future of artificial intelligence and its effect on fundraising. If you're a nonprofit leader, you really need to listen to this episode. Check out the show notes. It's number 167. Just go to the podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com and you'll see all of the resources Jay and I discuss, as well as more information on the great work he's doing through Frost on Fundraising, as well as his ambassadorial work for Donor Search. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Jay Frost. Jay, thank you for joining me on the path. So great to be here, Pat, and really appreciate it. I'm excited about this conversation, Jay. You and I have had some good conversations leading up to this, and there's a lot of topics that I know our listeners are going to benefit from, particularly given you your wonderful experience, three decades plus in uh, the nonprofit space with leaders around the world, frankly. And you have seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, especially as it comes to fundraising. And what I'm grateful for is, and I know our listeners will be, is that you've helped translate some of these stories into advice and counsel for leaders listening who may run into some of these issues, hopefully not as dramatically as the stories you're about to tell, but there are definitely lessons to learn. And and so we are looking forward to that. Uh, Let's start with it, Jay. How about a story that maybe you can start us off with that represents some of the horror stories in fundraising? There are so many ones that I could begin with, Patton. Um, so I'll actually tell the very, very worst. And it's one that we have overcome. Um, it's a, it's kind of an incident we have overcome because as an industry, we decided we weren't going to do something. And I don't think it's entirely because of the law that we made that choice, although the law has contributed to that in the years following. It's because we recognized we just couldn't do things the same way anymore. So I've collected, uh, as a preface to that, I've collected a lot of stories from other people. These are not um, all my stories. And they have shared them often anonymously um, to describe something that happened where they worked in the past and they thought was emblematic of the kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly, as you said. So this one I've dubbed the stalker. And so what I'm going to do is just... Uh, read from it if that's okay it's brief absolutely um, 
And it goes like this. It was the start of term and things were swamped with people registering for classes. A young man came to the window inquiring about a student for whom he had a social security number, saying he needed to deliver an urgent family message. My colleague made the rush decision that knowing the social security number was sufficient confirmation of relationship. She confirmed the student was enrolled, but had changed their name and handed him the easiest printout she could get, which was a form that included not only the student's class schedule and new name, but also her home phone number and address. The next day, we read in the paper that the student had been murdered. The young man turned out to be an abusive former boyfriend who had been trying to find her for six months. She had changed schools, changed her name, made sure all her information was ex-directory. Now, and there's a there's a note toward the end of that story just talking about, you know, where blame might fall. But I think the point is really made in the story itself, that after that, of course, there and everywhere, people crack down on the use of certain kinds of information that was associated with us in such a deeply personal way. But we keep doing those things in different ways today. And in fact, we're having those discussions right now about certain kinds of information that are meant to inform our relationships with people, but also pose potentially some danger. Let's say ethnicity, for example, or uh, political inclination, or all these other things that we do. And I'm not suggesting that we stop understanding people or researching people. I think that that research and um, you know maintaining relationships and all those things are vital to treating people as human beings and not as ATM machines. But the reason I'm raising it is because I do think that in all things, we need to be thoughtful, that we need to be guided by a process. And that process has to be guided by both our mission and vision, but also uh, our policies and procedures. And and, I, and I'm not confident that today that that, uh, that, that sequence uh, is any in any better shape than it was back then when that person was murdered. So we don't do the social security number thing anymore, thankfully, but we do other things just because we haven't stumbled over that wrinkle in the carpet yet. And I think that we can do better. Yeah, Jay, that's, it's a scary reminder of uh, the importance of how uh, the data we maintain. And I'm guessing, and I know there's no simple answer to an issue like that, but obviously we need to have policies and procedures about protecting this invaluable data, or or are there other lessons? I guess I'm struck by your point that I think we're still perhaps making mistakes that make our data vulnerable. And I think about in this virtual environment, a lot of organizations are sharing data, you know, with who they assume are trusted volunteers, campaign committees. But mm-hmm. I guess Jay, you would agree that's where we're continuing to remain vulnerable, maybe to issues like the one you described. Yeah, I think that's one of the places, and I don't mean to suggest. Once again, I just have to reiterate this. I don't mean to suggest that we should not be collecting information or that we should not be sharing information. I just think we need to be really thoughtful about what information is vital um, and who we share it with. And we need to do those things consistently. And we need yeah. to review that also frequently because the assumptions we make today are not necessarily the assumptions we will make tomorrow. And and I know that when you and I have talked about this offline prior patent, one of the issues was that um, th- that we all talk about these days has to do with uh, things like um, how we're tr- uh, determining who, which donors we wish to reach out to for support. Right. And that's also guided by policies and procedures. So that's not a data issue. That's an issue about 
what is the source of our revenue? What's appropriate for us? What's aligned with our mission? But once again, that's a policies and procedures matter. So have we discussed it recently? Have we reviewed it together? How is that guiding our activity? Um, our, and, and as far as communication uh, is concerned, how are we communicating those decisions with the public so they understand what we're doing? Not just a few people on our board and a few selected donors, but more broadly, the community. So they know that we're in a partnership of trust and everything we do is to um, lead our institutions to not only financial success, but uh, a successful partnership and achieving the things which are aligned with our mission. So I, I know that sounded like a, a, a bit of um, a jumble in there, uh, but I guess what I mean to say is that whether it's data or whether it's um, it, determining where we want to derive our income or how we want to hire people, um, how we want to communicate what we do with the public. I'm, I'm of the mind that we ought to be spending a little more time and effort on the policies and procedures uh, that, that, we, that govern our actions and that we ought to then be more comfortable with communicating those policies and procedures of the public and with continually revisiting them so that they are better aligned with our missions and with the public we serve. Yeah, so well put, Jay. And I'm guessing you'd agree that maybe our initial takeaway from this conversation is I would suggest, and I'm being intentionally provocative, that most organizations do not have the policies that you just described. And, and unfortunately, they react to horror stories like the one you shared. And so is it indeed your primary advice that one, they need to make sure they have these policies. And I guess two, they need to revisit them on a regular basis. Uh, yes. And <laughs> I don't know, as you said, I don't know that the people listening now that they do or do not have uh, these policies and procedures or that they are sufficient. I don't know. Right, I mean, right. They might be terrific and they might've revisited them yesterday. So I don't mean to paint with a broad brush the sector. What I am suggesting is that the stories we keep hearing, um, and the murder is the worst case scenario, but yeah. it's a story, by the way, which I had to hear from someone anonymously, and I have never heard in general discussions in our sector. But the, all the other things that we have heard a lot about, whether it's the opioid crisis and the Sackler family or Jeffrey Epstein and all the things with MIT and Harvard or lots of other things, we forget them so quickly. And I wonder if that's because we are not as committed as we could be to continually revisiting what is our guiding principle and how we solicit um, support, how we maintain our information, how we communicate with the public. Uh, and, I, and so I, I know I'm sounding like a broken record, and even that reference makes me sound old. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the, uh, the idea that, that, uh, that we're doing everything right, I, I think the evidence is that we're not. But that's not to suggest that we're doing everything wrong. It's just right. that we need to right. carve out a little time uh, to, uh, to think, um, and are we doing what we're doing in a way that makes us proud? Uh, well put. And I, again, I, I agree. Maybe many of our listeners are already uh, up to speed on these issues, but I'm guessing it's a wake-up call for others. And I'm delighted for you and I to, to be that wake-up call uh, if it helps an organization avoid some of these issues. Jay, you clearly bring a, an energy and a passion to this topic. Talk about your story. 
you've been in the space for a long time, but what brought you to the work you do now? Yes, and it wasn't um, an understanding of ethics uh, and or study, you know, or preparing for the ministry or something. If I sound like a moralist, I think it's, <laughs> I, I think I stumbled into that just as much as I did fundraising. Um, it, what led me, first of all, into the field uh, was was accidental, as with many people. I keep hearing the accidental fundraiser story uh, on, in the podcast that I host, um, and that is that I was, uh, after a, a brief flirtation with the film industry out in L.A., I came back with my tail between my legs and uh, then stumbled into a position at the National Endowment for the Arts as a floater. This is a person who moves around from office to office doing whatever needs to be done, right, largely right. copying things back in the days of paper. And uh, this, so that was where I was for a few months and then uh, kind of naturally found a role at a program called the Inter-Arts Program. And there's, you know, now that I think about it, there's a lot of connection between what we we're talking about and what and what I was doing even back then. The Inter-Arts Program was, or as it might be known today, interdisciplinary arts, um, was a very controversial place, um, as was the place I worked later, uh, which was the literature program, because they uh, received support, of course, from the government. And the idea was that the panelists uh, or other artists would make a decision about who would receive funding. And then that funding would go to artists to create new work or put on new work. It's all very much above board. It sounds pretty simple, pretty straightforward. And it's not much of the federal budget either. Right. And in fact, it hasn't changed almost uh, a smidge in all the years since I started working back in the 80s. Anyway, um, so I was there doing that work. And it was quite controversial because some of the artists funded would run afoul of uh, some P some some of the community standards uh, uh, that um, that were in in people's minds at the time um and i can talk more about that with you later if that's of interest um but i was there and then um enjoying it a great deal uh but found uh, that it was going to be important for me to see what life was like on the other side um i was a 24 year old i had responsibility for two million dollars in grants and once again i wasn't making these decisions i was facilitating that process that's why the the endowment was such a great place that it really was about artists determining what other artists uh should receive a little bit of support and encouragement um but still for a 24 year old who could recommend panelists to be in that process was pretty heady right. and i recognized that uh i probably needed a little more i don't know um wear and tear on my shoes before I was in that kind of position. So I had the opportunity to go with the woman who later became my wife, Yuko, to Japan for a few months. And I thought that was the end, that they wouldn't let me back in. They actually <laughs> offered me my position back, but I thought, well, maybe this is a good point at which to experience um, uh, the other side. And so I uh, very soon after that, I had a position, first at the American Film Institute, um, working in a kind of combined role uh, in program and then later at the at Meridian International Center in a fundraising role in a capital campaign um, and so on and so forth. So the entry into the career was kind of stumbling into it. But I do remember there were um, a couple of things that, that still stick out now. And one of them was a conversation I had with uh, someone I was inviting to be a, uh, a panelist. And this was when you would uh, 
just call people on the phone. I don't know if you remember what those were, but so <laughs> they were, yes. you know, that there was no internet as we know it today. There was right. DARPA and all that, but there was no internet as we know it today. And so I would call people up that I had not seen and they couldn't see me. All they heard was my voice. And I would ask them if they would consider being a panelist and reading hundreds of manuscripts in exchange for next to nothing in order to make decisions about grants. And so one person I called was Harriet Dorr, who is the author of Stone Sir Ibarra. And she, uh, she told me, I don't have time. And when I heard that as a 24 year old speaking to her, I thought it meant, well, she didn't have enough time during the week to read a whole bunch of manuscripts. And it took me a little bit, but I recognized, no, that wasn't it at all. She was, I think, 84. She had just published her first book. Wow. She didn't have time. It was a lesson for me. And so very early, uh, I started you know, making this kind of connection about, at least in my own mind, where is it that I should be spending my time? Uh, I, and I can't say that I've age has not brought wisdom in my case, but it has meant that I have um, had the opportunity to reflect on that time and time again and think, am I spending my time and energy in the right places? And I'd like to think that that guiding principle is also informing some of the things that that move me or motivate me to ask some of the questions I ask. Um, and uh, in the end, it's really those questions which are so motivating to me. Sort of that's why I'm drawn to podcasting, as I'm sure you are, is that the answers that we get from asking questions and then follow up questions and more questions are so much more fulfilling. Right. Um, sort of like calling her and asking her to do one thing. Well, that's perfunctory, but asking her really who she is or finding out what motivates her or finding out what time is, those things are so much more meaningful. And for us in this sector, just asking ourselves these questions about why are we here doing what we do? Can we do it better? Do we do it in a way that really involves everyone we want to help? Um, are we doing it out of our own volition? Or are we doing it out of a sense of partnership with others? These, I, I love these kinds of questions. And so for me, it's it's all about that in the end. And that's how I got there. Love it. And again, love the perspective you bring, uh, you know, reflecting on the experiences you've had. And I guess, Jay, talk about the work you are doing now, because mm -hmm. yes, as a fellow podcaster, uh, you've got great content that you're producing there. And I would encourage our listeners to check it out. But what else are you up to now? And how is that kind of shaping your current uh, thought process? Sure. Yeah, I've been dividing my time, uh, pre-pandemic anyway, really into three big buckets, uh, one of which, not all of equal size, but one of which was having the opportunity to, to speak because I enjoy doing that. So going to conferences and, and being able to talk about some of the things that are of interest, not just the big themes that we were talking about the start today, but also nuts and bolts of things like uh, how to find rich people has been a theme that I've yes. Uh, yes. pursued for a long time. And it's all, it, that seems to be evergreen. Everybody always needs to know where, where there are people who might be able to help us. Um, but uh, doing a lot of speaking and increasingly that became speaking about the why of things instead of just the what of things. Right. Um, then uh, another bucket was doing um, uh, consulting. So over the years, that was a migration from we're serving as a fundraiser within institutions uh, and then a service provider to institutions. And then more recently, over the last decade, um, working as counsel to institutions. So 
uh, listening to them and and hopefully asking good questions and providing some guidance on things like capital campaigns and so forth. And then a third bucket, which is this blast we all have of uh, talking with people like you and finding out uh, what they're thinking about and how they want to be remembered. And that's the podcasting piece that uh, I've enjoyed so much and I'm continuing to explore. Yeah, you and I share that, that enjoyment and the perspective you gain from these conversations with folks literally all over the world. And mm -hmm. that is the beauty of the technology we both uh, employ there. And it, it's allowed you, I know your story gathering, Jay, started, I'm sure, years ago, um, but you continue to gather them through conversations you have right now. I, I wonder, let's go back to that and some of sure. the horror stories that maybe there's another that you could share that's specific, but I'm also guessing they're lessons learned. So you alluded to a few, but maybe what is another horror story that our listeners might appreciate for the value and the learning it might provide? Yeah. I, you know, one I'll go back to is that Jeffrey Epstein piece. Um, so for those who don't know who Jeffrey Epstein is, uh, you haven't been watching the news, but um, <laughs> if they're listening contemporaneously, but uh, no, Jeffrey Epstein is like a lot of the people we want to quickly forget. Um, but that's looking at life in a rearview mirror. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein, I, I can't tell you his whole story, nor would anyone want to listen to it, but he was a major philanthropist among other things, but also seemed to be, I don't know, a bit of a, like a what's the uh, uh, the the plant that catches flies? Uh, Venus Venus flytrap. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> he seemed to be a Venus flytrap for the wealthy and influential. Yeah, there are all these people that you would be shocked, or maybe we aren't anymore. Um, wanted to spend time with this guy. Now maybe it was because he was doing terrible, terrible things and they were doing them too. Or maybe it's just because like some of them said, they thought he had great financial advice. I, I don't presume to know, and I'm not going to guess, but uh, it is fair to say that a lot of people rode his airplane with him. Um, and uh, a lot of those people are among the richest and most influential people in the world. Yep. So in any case, whatever their motivations, they wanted to hang around this guy. And once upon a time, uh, Jeffrey Epstein was also uh, briefly, a supporter of the school I attended, um, Interlochen Center for the Arts, oh, wow. which is uh, you know this great art school up in northern Michigan and goes back to 1929. Really charitable mission. Um, anyway, the the reason I mention this is that once upon a time, back in when I was living in Connecticut, there were alumni functions in New York, and Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, allowed the use of, I think, his offices and maybe his home at one point for meetings. And I know that I attended at least one meeting there. I don't wow. think I ever met Jeffrey Epstein. Right. But right. what I understand from others who did was it, they, they felt kind of the revulsion that was described, I think, by um, Melinda Gates as well on meeting him. So the feeling of attraction wasn't universal. Um, but my point is just that a lot of people had interaction with him if it was at you know quite a distance like mine where i never met him but i was probably stuffing envelopes in the house at some point for some alumni event or whether it was uh receiving a gift from him or in the case of some institutions who should have known better both by policy and by practice uh and experience it, were cultivating the relationship and serious gifts from him 
uh, all along that path for decades, they were building this relationship. Now, that the reason I mention this is because uh, when it came down to what happened at Harvard and MIT, uh, later, um, MIT received just, I think, $525,000. And Harvard didn't get, I don't think, a heck of a lot more than that. And if you if they had really observed their policies closely and listened to their staff, I don't think they would have continued the relationships, at least after the time when it was clear that he was doing things he shouldn't do, that either he had been indicted for something or convicted of something, but they weren't even listening to their own staff or their or enforcing their own policies, at least not uh, right. throughout the staff. And then afterwards, um, after he was uh, you know, convicted in jail and then died um, under uh, you know, questionable circumstances, that um, they, uh, they you know, conducted this internal review, I think at both universities, to make sure that everything had gone properly. But to me, what that smacks of is kind of uh, looking at those incidents uh, in a way that's performative. So it, it, I, this is not to criticize those two institutions which do wonderful work in so many ways and have been so meaningful to so many students and alumni and have such impact on not just education, but research and development and scholarship more broadly, all those things that MIT and Harvard do and many other places and other places like Interlochen that briefly had um, a relationship which was less volatile, less um, uh, financially lucrative, and certainly uh, not near, in, in no way is dangerous to the students. Um, uh, but, but the reason why I mention it is because so many places were attracted to the money and then let down their guard or yep. didn't apply the guards that they had. And I don't think this is, this is an isolated case because it happened with the Sackler family, which is the greatest example for all of us, yep. but it's happening many, many, many times in different ways. It's easy to get caught up in the sway of, of, uh, someone who has means uh, and every nonprofit fundraiser I think can appreciate that I certainly can too you're, you're eager to fulfill your organization's mission you identify folks that appear to have wealth and influence you go after mm -hmm. them and and, uh, and that puts us in a vulnerable position I guess not to as you put it I think there's two parts there one to have a policy that allows you to determine if there is uh, you know something wrong about a donor that you are not going to continue the relationship. Or let me turn it around, Jay, as a question to you. One, we have to have a policy, I guess, that allows us to disengage from mm -hmm. someone who's determined to have committed a crime or whatever. And it, or, or are there other implications, I guess, policy-wise? In other words, we have to have the ability to take the name off the building, <laughs> you know, if something goes wrong like right. that. Or what, what else do you suggest for a listener saying, all right, Jay, what do I do about this? And this is the toughest part. Um, so I don't want to be the person who just says you're doing, you all are doing something wrong now go and figure it out. But unfortunately, in a way, this is very much an individual, uh, case right. that an institution th that if, if you and I sit here and said, here are the, the 10 things that we think every institution should, should do and should not do. This is what, uh, qualifies as a, as a reputable donor. And this is what does not. I'm not sure that that's a fair uh, thing to impose on other institutions. Um, that, for example, yeah, George Washington University, I understand that there's some discussion about 
the name George Washington. I don't think that they're talking about removing the name from the university, but but I'm sure some people have advanced that. Yeah. Um, th there are discussions about uh, the, as we call them, the founding fathers and um, honoring those figures and should they be honored um, in, in naming of so many things around the country. Um, uh, obviously our legacy of slavery, which is so, you know, long, it goes back to the uh, 1619 at the earliest, but but uh, likely much earlier. Right. Um, all of these things uh, beg us to ask, well, what's appropriate for us um, by our contemporary standards? But I do think it would be unfair uh, for me to say this, this is right and this is wrong. What I do think that it's, it, it is uh, fair for us to ask is have these institutions ask themselves and their constituency recently, what, who do they want to be? What kind of organization do they want to be as they mature and evolve? Yep. Um, is, is, the, is the name on the wall reflective of their values? Um, and if not, what is their process for removing it? And so to your, finally getting to your point, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, if, they, if, they haven't, if they don't have a, not only a policy and procedure in place, and there's no way to revise what they've done unless they establish one, but then that policy has to have within it, policies and procedures have to have within them a way of making adjustments. Yes. Um, yes. And I know we're doing that sometimes with the pledge agreements, right? So right. Right. Uh, perpetuity might mean forever in one place and it might mean 20 years in another. But I'm not just talking about finance and, you know, edifices at this point. We're yep. talking yep. about the bigger issues. And and I, I wonder if instead of being reactive, we should be, uh, you know, uh, thinking about these things on a continual basis. So that so that we aren't saying we aren't um, tomorrow saying you know what we better remove a slaveholder's name off the building that we've had there for a hundred years, right? Just because somebody criticized us, but rather shouldn't we be asking ourselves whose names are on our buildings? Are they reflective of what kind of institution we are? And if we find that they're not, should we consider making changes? It, it, it shouldn't all be about whether or not we're getting bad press or whether or not people have forgotten, but really about our identity. Yeah, it's proactive. You're exactly right. And I guess that is, again, one of the takeaways of this conversation, I believe, is that how can you be more proactive and, as you say, be true to your mission and what it represents instead of waiting for the critique that comes in the media somehow. I'm struck by a practical opportunity, Jay, you've suggested is using some of these horror stories or case studies to create ongoing dialogue. Maybe it's at a board retreat or staff retreat. Yeah. And could you turn these stories into, you know, divide up the group and talk about it? What should they have done? What would we do if this happened? But, or do you have other ideas, Jay? It seems to me that could make this into a proactive exercise instead of reactive. Uh, I, I, I don't. And I wish I had thought of that earlier. Although um, I have to admit that it seems like I was drawn to it at first because it just seemed interesting and curious to me that that there are so many stories and I have something like 25 stories here over wow, 30 wow. years of different kinds of crazy things that people have done. And some of which are very funny, by the way, they're not all terrible. <laughs> not all. Yeah, um, right. uh, but but uh, but yes, I, I 
I should have done that, but um, but I have to admit I was responding a bit. I was doing the the very same thing I was just criticizing others for not doing, and that I was uh, there was entertainment value in it, and so it was a way to talk about an issue or to introduce it in terms of ethics. Yes, but I but I have to admit at the same time, people th there's a there's a certain quality of. Um, uh, about these stories that makes people attracted to hear them because they think, oh, uh, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. But now that I've heard it, I can walk away from it. I do think you're right. If there's a way to uh, make it a part of our conversations so that we don't just have, for example, AFP has an ethics month. We don't just have a couple of webinars on ethics and read an ethics statement and, uh, and then walk away from it. I, I think that would be far better for us to be considering these things continually. And if the stories yes. help us to do it, we should do it, especially because it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't end with what's happened in the past or what's right in front of our faces because of something criminal. Um, it's also happening in terms of contemporary kinds of discussions in the world. So there's, can I bring up something that's really, really fresh? Oh, absolutely, please do. All right, well, so, we, so at the time that we're having this conversation, um, there have been a couple of recent Supreme Court decisions, and some people will find those decisions wonderful, and some people will find them horrendous. Right. But my my question would be, if the court makes a decision that could potentially impact a nonprofit's activity, um, or the way that they work with their employees, for example, um, then should the nonprofit just sort of recede in the background and watch what happens um or should they make a statement about it but then not do anything right. or should they dive into it as a policy matter and then figure out how to implement uh potentially changes uh that will make it so that the employees and potentially donors uh are able to adjust to a new reality Yep, um, yep. And, it, and that sounds so vague, so I'll be more specific. And I, I know that saying this is at the risk of, uh, of raising some hackles, but one of those decisions has to do with Roe v. Wade. And um, one company, for example, uh, not a not-for-profit, but a company that's in Richmond, Virginia, um, and uh, that company is a marketing company, and they have made a decision to uh, you know, support employees who wish to receive certain kinds of reproductive health care services. Um, and this is a discussion going on in the commercial sector a lot. What's interesting to me is I haven't heard a lot of that discussion in the not-for-profit sector. That's true. And, and I, I'm pointedly not taking a position on that here because while I have an opinion, I don't think it really matters what my opinion is. What I do think that matters is whether or not organizations are going to know what their values are and be true to them with their own employees and with their uh, their boards. I'm not talking here about advocacy, which poses different legal complications uh, and questions, but rather just what are we doing with our own teams, the people we work with every day, how they feel and how they have to live. And I don't think it's just about Roe v. Wade. Right. I think it's about a lot of other issues that could come from the court, they could come from legislation. And um, so once again, uh, who are we really? And how are we going to make sure that we are uh, living those values with our staffs, with our boards, and with our donors? Yep, very well put. And again, it just strikes me that 
Um, organizations need to be proactive. What we are suggesting to our listeners is that do not wait for these conversations or these topics to hit you on the head uh, from the outside, <laughs> but have these conversations about your mission and what you represent. And it seems to me that that's not going to, as you said, prepare you for every eventuality, but I think it'll help you feel a little more comfortable with, you know, you're at least in a position to address these things. So, yeah, right. I'm, uh, well, yeah. Anything else on that point, Jay, that again, for our listener thinking, all right, this, this is heavy stuff, right? It, yeah, but it's heavy stuff. And I hope that it. doesn't, I hope that doesn't mean that people turn this off. Cause I think this is also kind of fun to talk about things that are meaningful. I agree. <laughs> so well, maybe I'm I, just a masochist. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, but there is a word we haven't used and I'm not using it on purpose, but I do want to make sure we mention it. And that's the yep. word uncomfortable. Yep. Uncomfortable yep. comes up a lot of our conversation now. And it seems to come up in one of two ways. One is that some people will say, you know, you've got to make people uncomfortable to make them change. And then other people were, will kind of shy away from that conversation entirely because they don't want to be stigmatized as being embracing of, of uh, values that are antithetical to the, the change that uh, the people who want to make people uncomfortable or seek in the world. Um, I, I believe it's possible for us to be having a conversation like this one about uncomfortable issues without making us feel personally responsible for Jeffrey Epstein, right? <laughs> because exactly. you and I are not. And even whomever was at MIT and Harvard and all these other places, I'm not s sitting here pointing at them. Right. I'm not right. going to you know, yell at Oxford for having a, a statue of a slaveholder. That's not the point. The point is to figure out who we are now. It's not to sit around and bash one another. And so I, do we need to discuss these things? I think we do. That's why I'm talking about it so much. But that doesn't mean I'm using this as an excuse to as a cudgel um, yeah, uh, for, yeah, yeah. for 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 the things that you and I might happen to believe and agree on. So anyway, uh, with that, yeah, absolutely. There are lots lots of other things in our field. I just hope that that will be a guiding principle as we discuss them. Well put, food for thought. Um, but speaking of other things in your yeah. Field of expertise. I want to make sure I cover this because you've got lots of good things we could go into multiple episodes. But and I wonder if the power of prospecting, Jay, is yeah. somewhat related. Uh, it's an area that you have focused in particular, and I know you uh, advise organizations how they can do a better job. I'm struck by the fact that perhaps their prospecting could better, if not completely identify the Jeffrey Epstein's, but could our research maybe do a better job to maybe identify some red flags or talk about the power of prospecting and what organizations can do better. Oh, yeah, I, I think so. But I, I think the, the chief problem, and you'll have to tell me if you agree about this, is that we don't have the researchers in the first place. Yeah. So, so I mean, it, we, in order to do any kind of due diligence, you need researchers to do it. You can't just rely entirely on vendors. And I love vendors, but that, that's not really their job. Uh, the second thing is, if you have the researchers, you have to empower them. And what does that mean? They need resources, uh, they need tools, and they need uh, to be heard yeah, and voice. heated. Yeah, right. Right. It, it, so it, when it comes down to this stuff, absolutely. Should one of the things that, that uh, institutions do be um, doing some kind of vetting process for donors, yeah. and as well as, by the way, looking for um, the donors among their giving constituents who can help a lot more, who we're ignoring, the middle donor, it's hollowing out. It's another kind of crisis in our in our field, unspoken crisis. 
um, uh, as well as, uh, you know, of course, doing research on the people who we love and support our missions and are very generous with us. Research has to research a lot of things. We usually only have, if we're lucky enough in any, we might have one researcher and we expect them to be both like, I don't know, the investigation division at the FBI, uh, <laughs> somebody who's like the marketing division of Coca-Cola, and then somebody else who's going to be writing a 300-page profile on the person that we should know about already. I think it's entirely unrealistic. We need to invest more in researchers. We need to give them more tools, and we need to start listening to them. And I would argue that, if, in fact, if we had done all those things at some of the places we talked about earlier, we wouldn't have had some of these problems. That's a great point. And I guess for organizations that can't necessarily add that specific staff component, but do you see organizations successfully adding that skill set to their existing development staff? Or is that a way that we, in other words, the team can be better mm. at prospecting or is that I even realistic? I don't know how realistic it is because we want fundraisers to raise money. Yeah. And that makes me sound real old school, but I, <laughs> I, I do believe makes in a portfolio. Sense. You know, so whether it's the kind of portfolio they pursued up at uh, Chicago or, or something where it's 45 or 50 people and it's all in the top of the pyramid principal gifts or whether it's, uh, you know, a non-campaign environment, you've got a portfolio of 100 to 200 people and you're developing relationships over time or whatever the model is, um, people need to pick up the phone, have lunch with folks, get to know them, listen to them, and then uh, see what uh, what projects are a marriage between their their interests and and vision for the future and ours, and then um, make those things happen. And I don't know how we can be doing a lot of research and doing that. So the reality is, you're probably right that um, we will have to do some of that. But I sure wish we would do with research what we've been arguing people should do uh, in terms of uh, proper vetting which is just to carve out a piece of the budget. Can you imagine if we started any business and we said, we're going to do all this stuff, but we're not going to spend any money on marketing I mean, yeah, a, or, exactly. or on sales? I mean, you have to do both, right? And so if we're not going to commit a certain percentage of our budget to research, then we're simply not going to have prospects uh, yes. or we're going to have the wrong ones and we're not going to raise any money. Yeah, it's a function we have to consider. So uh, if a, a listener right now needs to think about to the extent mm -hmm. it has, uh, you know, proportionate to its organization. Do you have this research component? If not, you could be missing out significantly. Right, um, and I would, I would also argue that that it uh, it probably needs to um, to track. So it's not consistent. It's not as if an institution of five hundred thousand dollar budget um, spends ten percent of its budget on research, and um, an institution of uh, you know fifty million dollars spends ten percent on research. It probably needs to scale. It probably need to yes. spend. Yes. more to identify these opportunities when they're smaller and then it'll it'll shrink a little bit because um again it, it let's let's use universities in the united states as an example most of them do have a research shop 75 percent of the apra membership is uh, made up of people who work in higher ed right um, that means only 25 percent work in the rest and um it, it so all those hospitals all those edu uh, uh let's say cultural institutions, social service agencies, they all need research support. They probably need to spend a little more on average as a percentage of their of their budget than would uh, a university simply because they need more of that opportunity. And that opportunity is created by knowing more about its marketplace. Yeah, well put. And that's, again, if nothing else, if someone comes away, at least maybe reconsidering their current investment or their potential 
you've made them think about a topic that is worth considering for sure. Um, I got two more rapid fire topics that Jay, I know, uh, warrant even more of your expanded <laughs> thinking, but I got to ask for a headline at least. At least. Sure. You, you have a great kind of presentation and content around standing out in a crowd. I wonder if you could share maybe the headline there that a lot of individuals and organizations perhaps can do a better job of standing out in the crowd. What do you mean by that? Um, saying yes, saying yes more and uh, uh, being fearless about it. And if you're offered an opportunity to do something, especially if it's a stretch for you to just raise your hand, um, that's really what that talk is about. And uh, a talk that I've given at a lot of conferences because I found that while there are a lot of motivational speakers at a lot of conferences, I wasn't hearing many people within our field talking about how we could be just as fearless as everybody around us that we typically support and provide a stage for. And the people in our field, people like you, if we have the opportunity, we can really inspire people to have greater impact. But that starts with being willing to raise our hands and and volunteer for things and being willing to stand out in front of the crowd, not just supportive of those who do. Yeah. And I guess related to that, you're saying a lot of nonprofit individuals and organizations are remaining silent or just or not raising their hand in opportunities that may in fact be beneficial to their cause. Well, I'm, I'm thinking about it specifically here as, and it sounds selfish, but beneficial to themselves. Yeah. So if, um, if an individual is offered an opportunity to serve on a, serve on a board or to go and, and work at an event in a public facing way to speak, uh, literally to, to speak at, at, a, at a conference or an event, those are all ways that they can really benefit from the joy of interacting with others in a more substantial way. So I know that um, that's asking people who might be more prone to be, uh, um, What's what's the right way of thinking about it? Introspective, yeah, uh, yeah. to to step outside their comfort zone. But I do think ultimately they can, if we can all find a way to do that a little bit, that it'll be beneficial to ourselves, but it'll also be sharing um, something that we uniquely have, as each of us as unique individuals have, with the audiences that we find. Um, yeah. We 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 have to step out of our shell a bit in order to um, really enjoy. Uh, life and our profession in a more meaningful way. Yeah, well put and good advice and, and pragmatic, as you put it. it. It could be the the right thing to do for the organization. But as you and I've talked about that, my book, uh, talking about your path to nonprofit leadership, I think those leaders that and many listening now want to ascend to senior leadership, and they probably are going to have to get out of their comfort zone and represent a voice that can be seen as a leadership voice. And sounds like that's exactly what you're encouraging them to do. Yes, and it does involve risk. Right. So in, and right. I've been involved now in several companies that were either startups, turnarounds, um, other things like that. All of those happen by accident. And anything I've learned from both whatever successes I've managed to have, but also the failures that I've had um, were the result of uh, uh, and willing isn't the right word, but was entertaining that risk. And yes. I think risk is a good thing. That's, I'm glad you will let that uh, simmer in the ears of our listeners right now, because you're right. There is risk 
as well as reward, uh, particularly mm-hmm. as uh, individuals aspire to get more involved and more into leadership roles. All right, Jay, I need you to just tease us with one more topic that is a specialty of yours. Um, and I know that you'll have other resources they can find, but uh, you have thought a lot and studied a lot the future of donor intelligence. W- what does that mean? And perhaps, again, you can whet our appetite for something that we need to learn more about. Sure. In a word, listening. So yeah. The, yeah. the skill that serves us best historically with major giving is something that can serve us really well in all the things we've been talking about, whether it's um, making sure that we don't see a hollowing out of the middle donor, that we that we are able to you know keep those people, uh, show them the the love or the, keep them in the hug, as Jerry Panis would have said. Um, listening allows us to better understand the communities that we have traditionally ignored, and there are plenty of them. Not in order to extract money from them, but rather to make them our full partners in the change we want to see in the world through our organizations. Listening allows us to um, build better models, including data models. I think that the reason why AI is so great as an opportunity um, is because it allows us to listen more effectively than we've done. Um, But that also means, once again, that we better have a lot of thinking about how we utilize it so it doesn't just reinforce bias. And it doesn't just act on the worst of our impulses, but in fact, it allows us to use our best and most powerful skill, which is to close our mouths, to open our ears and find out what's at the heart of the person sitting across the table from us so we can help them to be the better versions of themselves. Yeah, well, Jay, uh, needless to say, you've got my attention and and I know uh, our listeners are gonna wanna find out more about all of these topics. And we'll get to that in a minute because your website and other sources are gonna help them maybe dive deeper into topics like the future of donor intelligence, how to better stand out in the crowd, uh, as well as some of the horror stories and lessons learned that you and I've talked about. And for all this, I'm certainly grateful. Jay, in, in addition to all the, this great information you've given us, how about a book? You've oh. had a lot of books meaningful to you. I know on your journey, what's a book or two you might recommend to our listeners? Sure. Well, as, okay. So speaking of journeys, um, The Artful Journey, Cultivating and Soliciting the Major Gift, that was the first real fundraising book I ever bought in my first job as a major gift fundraiser. Wow. And uh, that's by Bill Sturdivant, who I later had a chance to uh, be on the faculty with at the Institute for Charitable Giving. So he was a great teacher and his book, I think still uh, has a lot of chops in it. It uh, tells tells us how to do our work. So I found that uh, very helpful. Um, everybody always talks about Jerry Panis's asking book. And I think it's a good book. All of yeah. those books are, you know, 60 minutes to read. There are a lot of great stories. Um, it, the, the fundamental message in that was listen the gift, which we talked about earlier. And then I'll list a third book. There are a lot of great books, um, but that's Prospect Research for Fundraisers. And the major reason I'm mentioning it is because we've talked about that intersection between knowing something about your donors and actually then developing the relationship and raising money for our missions. And I do think that whether we're going to hire researchers and understand what they do or see what research can do for us or we want to arm our existing fundraising staff and leadership with some knowledge about what the potential for for uh, for donor intelligence is, that that book is a great uh, intro to it because it's written by two of the best people in our field. That's Helen Brown and Jen Filla. 
um, people I always recommend if, if you want good, uh, insightful people who can help us to understand the role of research in contemporary fundraising. Love that. Uh, that sounds like a very important recommendations to add to our wish list. So for those listening, I'm grateful, Jay, for those additions to the recommendations of our uh, for reading and uh, other resources. So Jay, we'll include all that in the show notes and uh, tell us and tell our listeners, where can they find out more about you and the good work you're doing right now? Well, sure. If people are interested in talking with me, uh, you can always find me either on Twitter at Gordon J. Frost, or over on LinkedIn. Um, and then uh, I also have a Facebook page uh, that's Frost on Fundraising. I do have a website, which is uh, frostonfundraising.com. And that's where I talk with people about giving talks at conferences, doing board retreats and uh, counsel. Um, I do work with agencies like Brian Lacey and Associates, um, do a lot of capital campaign work with him and with others. And then uh, if people want to follow another series in addition to yours, that I would encourage them to check us out over at the Philanthropy Mastermind series, which is underwritten by DonorSearch. It's the non-commercial wing of what DonorSearch does. They give me free reign to just talk with brilliant people like you and a lot of other <laughs> leaders in the field from around the world who have a stake in making sure that we all do our work better and maybe some insights into uh, what you know, what is the role of change makers and innovators in fundraising and philanthropy? So um, I hope people will come and, and sit in that series and gather up those CFRE points and maybe even let us know what they'd like to see and hear in the future. Could not agree more. And grateful, Jay, for collaborations like that that you and I have had and I hope will continue to have. And for all of these resources and your insight, thanks for joining me on the path. Thank you. And it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jay as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can help your nonprofit organization avoid the scary fundraising stories that Jay shared with us on this episode. Don't forget to check out this show notes available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com, where you can go to the podcast page and find episode number 167. And you'll find out all about Jay and his consulting, speaking, and other great content production he is doing. As always, please share this episode with someone else on the path. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe. Just go to the podcast page again at PattonMcDowell.com. You'll see the follow button, and follow means subscribe. You won't miss out on any of our episodes, and you can connect through any of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out on any of these weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday. And if you like this one, click on the Episodes button at the top of the page. You can scroll through thumbnails of all of our episodes, and you can search as well uh, through some of our most popular episodes or by topic or guest name. Thanks, as always, for the work you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week. I'll see you next time on The Path.